According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Jeremiah once again, Jeremiah chapter 47, closing in on chapter 52. Pretty ambitious to uh, try to tackle 52 chapters and 52 Sundays, but I knew you could do it as uh, we had the example of Isaiah. We did 66 chapters and 66 Sundays, and I think these back-to-back prophets, now relax, we are going to Hebrews next, so we will be in the New Testament. I know it seems like we've been in the prophets since the prophetic age, but we are moving forward, and we will, when I come back from Ukraine, we will get a our first look at the book of Hebrews, and I expect to spend a significant amount of time in Hebrews. We won't knock that out in 13 weeks. Uh, It may be similar to the Roman study, where we end up with five to ten messages in each chapter. Uh, With Romans, it averaged ten. We covered uh, the 16 chapters of Romans and 160 classes, so that's a a four-year study right there, or a three-year study, but in any event. Uh, today we're in, we're in Jeremiah 47, and I am so eager to knock this out because uh, we've got 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, 52. That Sunday that we cover chapter 52 is the Sunday I fly to Ukraine. So I'll teach chapter 52 and then head to the airport, and that's why I don't want to have a, a big gap in between uh, and try to wrap it up when I come back. All right. Well, thankfully, we've only got seven verses. Look at that. It's going to be a short week. And then uh, we'll knock these out, and then we can beat the Baptists over at Luby's. How about that? We'll get get there early. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines. Who? Yes, the Philistines. Haven't heard of them for a while now, have you? They're still there. In Jeremiah's day, they were still there. All right, they're not there anymore, and this chapter addresses that. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, unworthy. None of us are worthy of being here. But we're all worthy, Father. Every single one of us that is in Christ has His worthiness, His righteousness, Your good pleasure, Father, upon us because of Your Son. And I thank You for that. And the blessing we have this morning to study, to show ourselves approved before Your face. Workmen needing not to be ashamed. You're not at all disappointed in any one of us, Father, because You are at work within each one of us to will and to do of Your good pleasure. So we call upon your faithfulness yet again. You will never stop being faithful for the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit to uh, open the eyes of our understanding, to speak to our ears of hearing. Father, to give us this heart to understand. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we introduced this section a week ago in the uh, beginning of chapter 46. 
that for the rest of the book, 46 through 51 anyway, we have chapters that are all directed towards the Gentiles. And there's even a a little bit of a heading, if you will, uh, at the beginning of these chapters. In chapter 46, it was that word which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. And that's an overall heading that covers chapter 46 to 51. And then in verse 2 of chapter 46, it is to Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho. And we have two Egyptian messages in that chapter, and we tackled that last week, an early message and a late message, uh, early and late in context of Jeremiah's overall career. Okay? These, uh, these are all out of order. Most of the chapters of Jeremiah are in a scrambled order anyway. Uh, but then for Jeremiah or Baruch or whoever it was that assembled these chapters at the end, placing these chapters where they are in the canon of Scripture came either at the end of Jeremiah's life or possibly after Jeremiah's life. I believe chapter 52 was written by Baruch, his scribe, and it was added, appended to the end of Jeremiah by Baruch, and that's not at all uncommon. I believe uh, Joshua wrote the final chapter of Deuteronomy. I think think that is fairly common in uh, many of these Old Testament books. So in chapter 47, then, we have the Philistines. Um, I gave you the list last week. I don't have that for the slide this morning, but um, chapter 48 has a number, has Moab in a very lengthy development for Moab, and then we get to chapter 49 where we have a long sequence of nations, Ammon and Edom and uh, uh, Damascus and Kedar and Elam. So we'll tackle all those. And then chapter 50 and 51, two complete chapters that are centered on Babylon. And uh, some of the deepest doctrine that's to be found is there in those chapters. So that gives you an idea where we're headed in, uh, in the coming week. For today, it's seven verses about the Philistines. Do you remember them? Yeah, have we seen a lot of them lately? All right. I mean, really, since that David and Goliath thing, have we seen a lot of a lot of Philistines, okay? Ultimately, in David's reign as the king, he, uh, he waged several decisive, conclusive wars against the Philistines. He subjugated them as neighboring nations. They paid tribute to him during his lifetime, during Solomon's lifetime, but then they started to break away. And uh, some of the history subsequent to Solomon is not too pleasant. Again, hostility between the Jewish people and those Gentiles on their, uh, on their border. In fact, one might even say it continues to this very day with Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and the Gentiles that are on that same real estate today. They're not the same people group, but they are uh, Gentiles on the same real estate uh, that the Philistines op- uh, occupied all that time ago. So this message against the Philistines preceded their defeat by Egypt, but highlighted their greater defeat by Babylon. And so it's it came early, but it applies late. Uh, it comes in a context here that we see introduced in the first couple of verses. So uh, that which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh conquered Gaza. All right? And that becomes significant. The fact that it was spoken early, but the application comes late is uh, validating, obviously, the foreknowledge of God and the wisdom of God who lays these things out as prophecies, things that uh, liberals deny today, that God can tell the future. But he does predict the future in short prophecies and long-term prophecies. 
And uh, there is a point of emphasis being made here that it was before Pharaoh conquered Gaza is when Jeremiah was given this message related to a later conquest uh, coming at the hands of Babylon. So thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are going to rise from the north. See, Egypt's not north, Egypt's south. Behold, waters are going to rise from the north and become an overflowing torrent and overflow the land in all its fullness, the city and those who live in it. And the men will cry out and every inhabitant of the land will wail uh, because of the noise of the galloping hoofs of the stallions, the tumult of his chariots and the rumbling of his wheels. The fathers have not turned back for their children because of the limpness of their hands on account of the day that is coming to destroy all of the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every ally that is left. For the Lord is going to destroy the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. And that's their origin, the origin from uh, the island of, of uh, Cyprus or Crete. Uh, they've got uh, different Mediterranean origins here for the Philistine people. Uh, baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has been ruined. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourself? Uh, their final desperate plea is by mutilation, calling upon their Philistine gods to save them. Ah, sword of the Lord, how long will you not be quiet? Withdraw into your sheaf, be at rest and and stay still. How uh, can it be quiet when the Lord has given it an order against Ashkelon and against the seacoast? There he has assigned it. All right, so that's what we've got to cover. Seven short verses, and uh, the information that's here is pretty straightforward. But I think the significance and the impact is powerful. And beyond just the human destruction, there are angels in this passage. There are fallen angels in this passage. There are Nephilim in this passage. There are aspects of this passage that get really deep once we correlate it with Genesis and once we correlate it with David and Goliath and we correlate it with the whole body of Scripture. And I think the sovereign control of the Lord, we saw it last week, the sovereign control of the Lord is taught very plainly in Acts 17 that God had maintained sovereign control of borders, sovereign control of nations, uh, their rise and their fall. It says very clearly that, that he has appointed their sovereign, the, the times and the boundaries of their habitation. And we can, we can find that as a great comfort we can find that as a huge encouragement for us in the body of Christ as we watch our nation and we wonder, uh, are we slated for destruction? We can be confident in knowing that Jesus Christ controls history and very thankful that uh, in, in the grace of God, his plan is achieved. But I think at the same time, we also need to be mindful of our sin and the defilement of our land and the darkness of our nation and, uh, and ask ourselves, are we headed for the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, destruction? Or are we already past that? At what point have we crossed the line? And, uh, and how do we evaluate these things with divine norms and standards, with a biblical viewpoint on, on this approach? All right. So um, some details here now, highlighting their greater defeat by Babylon. The real issue is this flood that's coming from the north. Pharaoh Necho brought the Philistine cities under Egyptian dominion, 
when he made his advances north to Carchemish. And we spent some time on this last week and talked about the Battle of Carchemish, one of the great hinge events in, in human history. The uh, victory of, of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians over the last remnants of the Assyrians. It really was the final uh, straw that broke the camel's back of the Assyrian Empire. And we talked about how along the way out, in fact, I didn't have a map for you last week, so I made a map for this morning. And the, uh, the uh, efforts that Nico was, uh, was really a great pharaoh, and he was, had dreams about expanding Egyptian influence again, back to the glory days, back to, uh, they hadn't done a lot since the Exodus, they hadn't done a lot since uh, the glory days of Ramses, they had some brief excursions under Shishak, uh, but not so many, and nothing that was permanent or lasting. And uh, But now under Nico, they were hoping that they could march forth all the way, uh, not only out of Egypt, but all the way up here to the Euphrates, and uh, which, which is quite a stretch for Egyptians, even at their peak, uh, to reach the Euphrates was quite a stretch. And the idea, they thought that they could get up there and that they could support Assyria. They could prop up Assyria uh, and help to defend them and keep them in place, uh, naturally a weakened Assyria, uh, in place that owed them would be a nice thing to have, uh, as opposed to Babylon, a young, hungry, energetic, powerful Babylon. And that was definitely Nico's concern. So this march was quite a march. And quite a supply train. The biggest issue for an extended military deployment is keeping the supplies and uh, keeping that train active. And so if you've got a, a Jewish king here that wants to cause trouble, you can't let that happen. All right? And this is the thing. We talked about this because Josiah was a good king. He was the last good king of Judah. And uh, amazing how God gave them one final good king, even after Manasseh. Really, when God pronounced wrath at Manasseh's reign, it was game over for Judah. They were headed for destruction after that. Nothing was going to stop the Babylonian destruction uh, from the days of Manasseh onward. But you had Manasseh, you had Ammon, and then you had one final good king, good King Josiah. And um, they rediscovered the law, they had a revival, they threw down a lot of idolatry. Uh, He listened to the prophet Jeremiah, all right? An extraordinary last gasp. And so um, you wonder sometimes, and when, what's the course of our nation? And when, when elections go the way they go, and what kind of president you get, and, and what's coming up next, and what's coming up next? And are we, are we slated for destruction? And uh, will there be one final revival? Will there be one final burst of positive volition where pastors are feeding their flock instead of uh, entertaining and tickling ears and and uh, overseeing uh, social programs. All right. So anyway, all of this comes up here at Carchemish, this great battle at Carchemish in uh, the application there. So on the way north, Egypt brought the Philistine cities under their dominion, which would be the only one on this map there is Gaza. But originally there were five Philistine cities. All right. By this time, there's only two that are mentioned here, probably a third in uh, the Hebrew with, with a variant in the, in the manuscript. All right, back then to this slide. So, uh, Nico had brought the Philistine cities under Egyptian dominion when he made his advances north to Carchemish. And truly, um, the Philistines were never again the power that they had been before David, before King David. 
after King David subjected them, they, they were greatly diminished. Uh, they never again rose to, to be really a, a threat, an existential threat. They were more of a nuisance, I think, to Rehoboam and the other Judean kings afterwards, and uh, not really an existential threat uh, since that time. Nico could not allow the Philistines to remain behind him as potential enemies during his extended expedition to the Euphrates River, just like he couldn't let Jerusalem remain behind him as, an, as a potential enemy. Similarly, Judah's opposition was dealt with, and uh, Jehoiakim was made puppet king in Jerusalem. Do you remember this? This was uh, what happened when Josiah was thrown down, and then Eliakim uh, becomes the new king, and he gets renamed, and he's given the name Jehoiakim in, uh, in this. And there will be some of that back and forth as well. Babylon would come in, and they would either accept or not accept the Egyptian puppet. And uh, Jeho- Jehoiakim was kind of a two-faced rascal who uh, did a good job playing both sides and swearing his, his faithfulness to both sides uh, and then betraying both sides and, and so forth. He's an interesting study himself. But when you read 2 Kings 23, you get those details, verses 31 through 35. And so with a puppet on the throne, he's paying tribute. Uh, if you extort enough gold out of him and enough silver out of him, then that does two things. It helps to finance your expedition and also limits the, the kind of troops he can, he can then raise and, uh, and that in uh, any potential rebellion. Following the defeat at Carchemish, see, it, it, things didn't go as planned, right? Uh, they lost at Carchemish. They lost big at Carchemish. And uh, so they retreated back into Egypt. And uh, never again would Egypt rise in, a, in any kind of a global power kind of way. Um, after the Egyptian defeat at Carchemish, their Philistine vassals then, well, now we switch to plan B. <laughs> the Philistine vassals can now provide a buffer state against the approaching Babylonians. And they could even provide some additional assistance to the Phoenician cities, to Tyre and Sidon. And that's ultimately what gets addressed here in this chapter, is the stripping away the allies for Tyre and Sidon. And it's almost insulting to receive a wrath of God message and and then learn that, oh, by the way, um, you're almost a side effect. (laughs) That yes, the wrath of God is being applied to you, but it's being applied to you for somebody else's sake. In, in, in this case, we're going to see it's for the sake of Tyre and Sidon. That is a part of God's discipline to them, stripping away their allies, stripping away their sources of confidence in, uh, in different ways. And so this is kind of the 6th century uh, geopolitics of, uh, of, the, of the day as Babylon was expanding and all these other countries. And, and, and we've been coming to this again and again and again, and we'll keep experiencing this in uh, the upcoming chapters because the Edomites and the Moabites and all these other people uh, are, are going to have to uh, be addressed as Babylon is arising. Some other studies we have to pay attention to, I think some overall plan of God studies that become vital we cannot overlook the fact that God himself is vacating the Davidic throne. God himself is removing his glory from the temple and he is vacating the Davidic throne. 
He had promised that David's son would sit on that throne forever, and then he's making it an empty seat. He's vacating the throne. And so Jehoiakim uh, is, is killed, Jehoiachin is carried away, Zedekiah is carried away. The Davidic throne is, becomes vacant at this time. And so the rise of Babylon represents something new. It's different from previous rise of Egypt or the previous rise of Assyria. It's different from other uh, would-be empires. Something new is happening now with the, with the sequence from Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And something new is happening. And this is what starts to get revealed through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, but more especially through Daniel. Through Daniel and Ezekiel, we start to get a scope of prophetic studies that go ahead to the millennium. They point ahead to the return of, of the Jewish people into the land and to the second advent of Jesus Christ, to the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth and uh, the blessings of what uh, Israel has to look forward to in their eschatological promises. So it might seem like a simple chapter. <laughs> it might seem like there's only seven verses there and not a lot going on. Okay, so I get it. The Philistines, they're going to get it. Okay, that's the short version. Yeah, Philistines, your time has come. You've been on borrowed time since David. You've been on borrowed time for about 350 years. Um, you're going to get what's coming to you, but it's deeper than that. And there is so much more now that's on the horizon. Interesting how the expressions here wouldn't go over well in our PC culture, but we've got to look at it. The idioms are, are curious to me. In verse uh, 3, we've got the terror that's taking hold of them here. Terror rendered the Philistines with limp hands. All right, you know what that idiom speaks to? They have limp hands. It speaks to their effeminate uh, fear. They have lost their manhood. They are um, surrendering, in fact, surrendering their manhood and forsaking their families. If you can't defend your wife and your children, are you even a man in, uh, in the biblical model for what God has designed for spiritual leadership and protection and provision? And uh, the aspects there. That's why widows and orphans are in such dire straits is because they don't have the God-sanctioned provision through their husbands and through their fathers and through the spiritual leaders in their home. But you'll notice in verse... Um, Three, the, the flood is coming in verse 2, and they can hear it before it even hits. And uh, the men cry out, and every inhabitant of the land will wail. All right. But it says, because of the noise of his galloping hoofs and his stallions, the tumult of his chariots, the rumbling of his wheels, and you hear it long before it ever arrives, and your fear just magnifies it. The fear makes it worse and worse than, you know, probably than it really is, you know, because you can just imagine based on what you're hearing as it comes up. And this is truly a, a flipping of the, of the tables, right? Because you recall in the, in the, you know, back up 350 years to the King Saul era when David's a shepherd boy and, and the Philistines, they used fear as their primary tactic and the giant would stand there and taunt them and uh, they would uh, mock them and taunt them for days on end, challenging uh, any, any Jewish champion to step forward and, and fight the, the Philistine champion, and no one was going to do it. They were controlled by their fear. 
And if you think about it, how many of our failures come uh, because not only because we failed the test, but we actually surrendered ahead of time. We actually failed ahead of time before the test was even fully on board because of our fears leading up to the test. We'd already lost before the battle even presented itself. We were losers going in. And that's, uh, there's a lot that you can preach related to that as well. So they surrendered their manhood and they forsook their families. It says the fathers have not turned back for their children. You know, at the very least, if you're fighting that rear effort, if you're fighting that rear guard action, you're hopefully giving your wives and children the time to escape, and and they're not even doing that. They're just actually bailing themselves, every man for himself, and uh, fleeing, and and not even that's going to work. Anyway, they're going to end up losing their wives and their children. They're going to end up being plundered, not only in their houses and their fields and their lands, but their women and their children end up being plundered as well and end up being, uh, becoming their slaves, becoming the sex slaves, becoming the, the, uh, the intermixing of things that, that are unpleasant to think about, but they are the reality of losing a war in the ancient world. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's something else. Okay, I think in the whole history of warfare, the only people that ever were improved by losing a war were the people that lost to the Americans. Okay, And it always seems that following war, America, first of all, we didn't plunder, we didn't rape, we didn't uh, you know, mongrelize their culture. We ended up enriching their culture and tr- becoming trading partners in, in the decades after and ended up rebuilding nations to where they were better than they were before the war started in some respects. All right. Um, Just for the story's sake of it, let's uh, take a a look at 1 Samuel 17. We should know this already, but uh, it's worth worth a short peek. You can leave your your, uh, ribbon, if you have a Bible ribbon, or your church bulletin, or your bubblegum wrapper, whatever you have handy, Use your finger if you have to there in uh, Jeremiah 47. We'll be back there shortly. But taking a look at 1 Samuel 17, and we can see some of this terror, some of this fear. And um, this is, of course, the, the Goliath chapter. And without reading all these first 10 verses, um, it is the Valley of Elah, and what's that about? The Valley of the Gods, if you understand the Elah, Elohim vocabulary. And drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, right? So nine foot three or whatever that was, a tall guy. And um, his armor and his weapon and, his, and all of this, and the taunting, uh, his shield carrier also walked before him because that was a pretty heavy shield and there was not a, a wimpy guy carrying that either. And then uh, verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Why, have you been a, why are you here today? Just surrender now. Why are you in battle array? Why are you in formation? Why did you bring swords? Why did you bring armor? 
You should have just shown up with your uh, white flags to surrender. Choose a man. Am I not the Philistine? And uh, there's a title associated with that. They were a, a, a pentapolis. They had five cities. There were five lords of the Philistines, but they came together with one lord and uh, submitted to Goliath as their champion, giant that he was, Nephilim that he was. All right. And we'll have to address a little bit of that here today when we talk about the offspring of fallen angels and human women and the hybrid that is then produced, that is accursed of God, in, uh, n- not in Adam and not subject to the Christ-like re- the redemption from the second Adam, but uh, the uh, abomination that it was for the Nephilim when they walked this earth. All right, am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, let him come down to me. Pick a man. Do you have a man? <laughs> See how insulting this is? Are there any men over there or just the girls I'm looking at or the boys I'm looking at or whatever kind of other Philistine insult you come up with? Choose a man if you can find one. And uh, if he is able to kill me, we will uh, become your servants. If I prevail and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. And so day after day, this this would continue. And... um, Verse 10, again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And so what do you do? I mean, are there any answers? Is there any hope? If, if you're consumed by your fear, then there are no answers. There's nothing to do except wait for the worst. And so uh, this is what introduces David now. Um, doesn't say how old he is. I'm guessing 10. I'm guessing maybe 12. All right. Because if he was any older than that, he'd be with his brothers already in the army. I don't think he's four. He can't be 14 because he'd already be with his older brothers in the army. So he's, he's 12. Remember, marriageable age was different back then. <laughs> okay. So maybe he's 10, maybe he's 12. Maybe he was Timothy's age when Timothy started following Paul. So peg it as a 10-year-old here. And he's already killed lions and he's already killed bears. He did that when he was nine, right? Or eight or whatever. I'd like to see this on video. All right. Right? You get those DVDs with the deleted scenes. You get to watch kind of the behind the scenes. I want to, I hope they get a lot of those in heaven. So um, David was the son of the Ephrathite. Same language. You have the Philistine, you have the Ephrathite. Jesse was the Ephrathite. He was the clan patriarch of clan Ephrathah. Too small to be counted among the clans, but nevertheless, that was Jesse's clan. He was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. He had eight sons, and Jesse was old. And uh, anyway, the three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And uh, those guys. Anyway, so David was the youngest. And um, David was kind of the messenger boy, running back and forth, uh, tending his father's flocks at Bethlehem. And so the Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took a stand. How long does this take? At what point do the Philistines just say, all right, forget it then. Let's go crush them. I mean, they're already terrified. So um, Jesse said to David, his son, take now for your brothers an ephah, 
of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp of your brothers. Bring also, not only are we feeding the family, but also providing gifts to their commanders, ten cuts of cheese to the commanders of their thousand, and, and look to the welfare of your brothers. And so this is what happened. So uh, they were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early, uh, left the flock with the keeper, took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded. And he hears this. And this is his first time to hear it. It's been going on for 40 days. But now David hears it for the first time. And uh, here comes the again, verse 23, Goliath, the champion, taunting with those very same words. So why haven't they been dealt with it? Well, again, verse 16, they were terribly afraid. Verse 23, they're terribly afraid. So he was uh, talking with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. He spoke these same words, and David heard them. And when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. And uh, all they can do is go whisper and dream about some hero. Please, somebody come save us. Here's what the king is going to do for him. And, uh, and I love David's attitude. In verse 26, you know, this uncircumcised Philistine, we got to just deal with it. It's a simple solution. Why hasn't anybody done this yet? And it's, it's remarkable for his faith and their lack of faith, I think, in, uh, in all these things. It's making his brothers mad in, uh, in those things. So uh, again, verse 26, David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? That's the real issue. It's the reproach against Israel. God's covenant nation is being insulted by this uncircumcised Philistine. And that offended David. It has to offend the Lord, the people that are called by his own name. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? David has, doesn't care how tall he is, how much he weighs, the weapons he has, the shield that he has, the spear that he has. None of that bothers him at all. The only physical description he says is that's an uncircumcised Philistine. Meaning what? He's not the covenant nation of Israel. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant between Yahweh and his people. And so uh, the people said, hey, here's what's going to be done. In fact, you get to marry the king's daughters, uh, daughter, you get to be enriched with uh, treasure, and uh, you, be, you are made free in Israel. His father's house is made free in Israel. Imagine your entire clan, your house, tax-exempt for the rest of your life. How's that? Wow. Okay. I can check off on a whole lot of taxes I'd rather not be paying right now. <laughs> All right. So uh, Eliab, his oldest brother, verse 28, when uh, he spoke to the man, uh, Eliab's anger burned against David. Why have you come down? What are you doing here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You notice how scornful he was, dismissive unimpressed. Here's the oldest son who thinks his dad is stupid, thinks his dad is, is worthless. He just has a tiny little flock. He's just a scraggler little clan. In fact, it's too small to be called a clan. And, uh, you know, he's the Ephrathite. Ooh, big deal. We're a tiny little clan. We've got just a bare handful of sheep. You know, 
if you want to make a big splash, you got to be big time. You got to go to, you got to be, you know, you got to serve the king. There's a man with real wealth. There's a man with real flocks. Those few sheep in the wilderness. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. Really? God says he's a man after his own heart. What kind of heart does Eliab have? Why does Eliab call David here a wicked, insolent heart? You have come down in order to see the battle. You're just a little kid, uh, you know, rubbernecker, looking at the train wreck on the side of the road, or you want to come watch the battle, and you've got all these dreams of growing up and being a warrior, but you're just the, you're the smallest of these eight kids. You're the runt of the litter, David. And David's like, what have I done now? Is it not just a question? Anyway, we know how this turns out. His testimony is amazing. King Saul says, you can't do this. I love it when other people tell you what you cannot do when God is calling you to do something. Okay, God's calling you to be a pastor. God's calling you to do something. And all kinds of people will say, well, you can't do that. You don't have the qualifications and you haven't done this. You don't have that and blah, blah, blah. And uh, you're just a boy and he's been a warrior since he was a boy. And David says, hey, I was tending my father's sheep and a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and I attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. He's killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands before. What's he afraid of this Philistine? Okay. And uh, anyway, we know how this, how this all turns out. Well, all of this is to illustrate now the tables have turned. Now we're, you know, fast forward 350 years, 400 years, and now uh, it's the Philistines that are just terrified. It's the Philistines that are limp-wristed. It's the Philistines that are effeminate. It's the Philistines that are, have lost their masculinity and are now surrendering their wives, their women, and their children as they flee, as they surrender their duty as men. And it's... Uh, Something else. All right. Back to Jeremiah then. I think it's interesting too, looking at verse 4, Jeremiah's prophecy identifies the Philistine destruction as a tactic to remove them as allies for Tyre and Sidon. It's simply a tactic to remove them as allies for Tyre and Sidon, the, the two leading Philistine, uh, not Philistine, Phoenician cities up on, the, up on the coast. It says in verse 4, on account of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every ally that is left. Sometimes the Lord is working and, and the, the country is working in is not really his prime objective. It's secondarily to something else. Our nation may face destruction for our own wickedness, or, which we certainly deserve, or, in the unfolding of God's prophetic plan for Israel, he has to bring Israel to the place that they have no more allies remaining. We know prophetically that happens. We know eschatologically Israel has no one that they can turn to. They even make a bargain with Antichrist. He's the only one they have to turn to. All the nations are arrayed against them. So if eschatologically that has to happen, what then has to happen prior to that? 
for nations such as, say, oh, the United States of America that have previously been good allies of Israel. In other words, I believe a day is coming when APAC is going to be out of business. When uh, the American-Israeli, uh, what are they, Public Affairs Committee, you know, they, they try to promote a, a good working relationship between America and Israel. Well, that's going to be gone. America will no longer be an ally of Israel. And so how, how is that going to happen? What makes that happen? Could it be our national destruction? See. All right. And then some people get all excited and they go, ooh, ooh, ooh. Does that mean the rapture could be any minute now? Who said that's going to happen before the, after the rapture? Who says that we get, you know, the rapture delivers us from the tribulation. The rapture is not a get out of a national destruction free card. We may, uh, who's to say that America will still be around when the rapture sounds? Okay. People conflate the two and that's a mistake. All right. So uh, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every ally that is left. For the Lord is going to destroy the Philistines, the remnant of the coastline of Keftor. And that's the older name for where they came from there um, on the island of, uh, of Cyprus. All right. Or Crete. I, I get those mixed up. I'm dyslexic. Cyprus. They both start with C. They're both islands in the Mediterranean. That bugs me. <laughs> I want to rename one of them so I can keep them straight in my, mind, in my own mind. Cyprus is where they came from until I changed my mind. All right. But they were basically Greeks. They were basically a, a Mycenaean civilization uh, prior to the Hellenistic age, prior to the classical age of Greece. Uh, they were known as the Sea Peoples, and they moved in, they swept into. Uh, they invaded Egypt for a time. They invaded the, the coast of Canaan for a time. They, inv- they invaded uh, Turkey, what today is Turkey, the Anatolian Plateau, and overthrew the, the Hittite Empire, um, and then pushed the Hittites over to Carchemish. Carchemish was the last capital of the, of the Hittites uh, because the Sea Peoples, had uh, the Philistines, had uh, overthrown all the rest of, of what the Hittites had. All right. What else do we see here? We see a flood, a Babylonian flood. And we have a a manuscript issue here in verse 5. Baldness. No, I'm not going to do a Hebrew study on baldness, so relax. People take things personally when I hit a verse like that. But there is a manuscript question here. O remnant of their valley... What is that talking about? And uh, remnant or seed or descendants or um, we have a Nephilim term actually that's employed here which is interesting to me. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has been ruined. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourself? And if you're involved in these demons and you're using the gashing to summon your God, you know, the powers of your gods, what are you really doing? I find it interesting. There is a Babylonian flood, a Babylonian flood, and is this the remnant of the valley or the remnant of the Anakim? That's the question. Uh, the word valley and the word Anak- Anakim are just one letter off, 
whether it's an N or an M, and it's just one letter off in, in the manuscripts here. And, and I think it's a clue in the, how the Hebrew manuscripts were corrupted and how the Hebrew manuscripts had some of their copy errors and some of their issues. You look to translations like the Septuagint, and uh, in the Septuagint you find that they rendered this as the remnant of the Anakim, the remnant of the giants, uh, as we understand it from other Old Testament texts. So the Babylonian flood destroyed the final Anakim remnants, even as Noah's flood destroyed the original Nephilim. And it's, it's a neat parallelism of the poetry, if in fact this text variant is the, uh, which I think is, the more accurate reading of the, uh, of the Hebrew. And uh, so we would stop, if we weren't doing one chapter every single Sunday, we would stop right here and probably spend several weeks uh, reviewing the doctrine of Nephilim, reviewing the teaching of, of the angelic intrusion into the seed of the woman. Uh, it is an attempt to destroy the seed of the woman promise. Uh, the second Adam cannot redeem the Adamic race if the Adamic race is not the Adamic race any longer. If there are no more true uh, Adamites, humans, to be redeemed by the second Adam, then Satan uh, has, a, has a victory route that way, or he thinks he does. In, uh, in that attack. So um, I'll give you the three-minute ver- <coughs> version of this just so that you can point it out. If you've never been exposed to this before, then uh, let me uh, just show you the basics of it. In Genesis 6-4, in Genesis 6, this is right prior to the flood, and... Um, In Genesis 6, it says, It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And so we got a context here prior to the flood, whereby in the descendants of Adam and Eve, men, humanity, began to multiply. Okay, Angels are not procreators, mostly because there's no girl angels. All right, That that limits your, your birth rate. Um, but humanity was created male and female. Male and female, he created them. And they began to multiply. They were commanded to multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Angels are never commanded to do that. And without girl angels, that, uh, that explains things. All right. Um, but they are capable, though, of appearing in the form of a man. They can, on occasion, we don't understand how, but occasionally they can take a physical human form. And they do so here when they, they uh, take these women. So the sons of God, angelic reference everywhere in the Old Testament, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And God puts a limit on how much he's going to tolerate of this apostasy. He also assigns Noah the role as a preacher of of righteousness to keep preaching the truth of God's word. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. That is the most important expression of the whole verse, right? Because if they're on the earth in those days, how do they survive the flood? Because <laughs> the flood killed everything except for the eight souls on the ark and the, and the animals they put on the ark. 
So how did these Nephilim, it says, and also afterward. Well, how's that happen? The explanation right here. When sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men, men of old, men of renown. These giants that grew to the proportions they made human beings look like grasshoppers in their sight. All right? And, uh, and I accept this. I've taught this for years. I'll always teach this. I think the other explanations are pathetic for, you know, the godly line of Seth and the, and the wicked line of Cain and some intermarriage of believers versus unbelievers. Have you ever known a believer and an unbeliever that were in a mixed marriage and they had babies? Were they giants? Okay. In any event. But the angel offspring and uh, the hybrid... Nephilim, fallen ones. And this is what we see. In those days and also afterward. That's how they showed up after the flood. That's why they were there when Joshua and Caleb were trying to conquer the land. That's why they were still there. A remnant of them were still there in David's day. Goliath and there were five others. Either sons or brothers or kinsmen to Goliath. Okay. And uh, the final remnant are going to be wiped out here by the Babylonian flood, the Babylonian uh, advance. Nebuchadnezzar destroys the last one. Um, other references. Numbers 13, 33. Here's some post-flood Nephilim. And the spies are spying out the land and reporting back. And everything is great. Yep, milk and honey, great stuff. Grapes. The only problem is giants. <laughs> okay? And uh, so they said, let's just pack our bags and go back to Egypt. And that's the lack of faith that they have there. Numbers 13, um, verse 32 says, a bad report. They're too strong. Uh, they're fortified cities and there's giants. We're not able to go up against the people. They're too strong for us. So they give a, a bad report. The sons of Israel, a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone and spying out is, is the land that devours its inhabitants. All the people whom we saw in it are men of size. Well, how does that happen? There are also, we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. They were the longest remaining remnant of Nephilim were the Anakim, the sons of Anak. And that's what we have in Jeremiah 47. Um, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Finally then, Joshua 11 And you'll note, in the course of the, of the uh, conquest, one hero in particular stepped forward, and that was Caleb. Caleb's a tremendous hero. And he's already, I think he's 80 years old. I think Caleb is an old man. He survived the 40 years in the, wall, in the wilderness. He's still leading his tribe. He was a faithful spy. And then 40 years later, how old is he now? And, uh, and, he still has a daughter or multiple daughters of marriageable age because he challenges his men. He says, that, you know, the first one over that wall, I'll give my daughter's hand in marriage, you know, or go kill that giant, you can marry my daughter. And that's, that's to me, man, that's, 
oh, Caleb's a hero. He still has, he's still having babies at that age and still uh, living with a great vitality. All right. So Joshua 11, verses 21 to 22, the um, aftermath of this. Um, well, verse 21, Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only, notice, in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, some remained. The final stragglers found refuge with the Philistines. And they were accepted by the Philistines. And they become, uh, you know, a couple generations later, they become the champion of the Philistines in, uh, in the person of Goliath. So that's where they found as their final refuge. All right, well, aspects on that. Beyond Jeremiah's prophecy, there will be additional messages. A later and final word against the Philistines is given by Zechariah, promising their physical disappearance from history via mixed marriage mongrelization. Mixed marriage mongrelization. And I'm using biblical terms. I want to be careful because sometimes there's, there's, um, there's other things and, and hurt feelings. Um, but Zechariah chapter 9. Now, what happens when we switch from Jeremiah to Zechariah? What have we just done? We just went, we just fast forwarded through the entire 70 year captivity. And we've come back now. Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the final three prophets of Israel back in the land after their Babylonian captivity. Back in the land. And you're going to get a lot of this. Lewis has been doing some work on this and, and uh, he's got some messages you're going to get on this, on the post-exile Old Testament history. It's the section of the Old Testament we know the least and it's that final section of Old Testament history before the silent period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Anyway, that's what we get with Zechariah. So let me turn there. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So Babylon did all the sweeping away. Then Persia overthrows Babylon and, and Persia starts allowing people to go back. Persia starts allowing the Jews to go back. Persia starts allowing Philistines to go back. Persia starts allowing other groups to go back. Saying, hey, we know that the Assyrians and Babylonians were really happy to relocate people. Um, we, we don't really care. If you want to go home, go home. <laughs> okay? and, the, and the Persians allowed that. They allowed the Jews to return, I think because for divine reasons. And I think they allowed other Gentile nations to return simply for human reasons in, uh, in different ways. Anyway, Zechariah 9, verses 5 through 7. And uh, again, we have, similar to Isaiah and Jeremiah, these other messengers, uh, these other prophets, it is a burden Zechariah 9.1, the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place. And then uh, Hamath also in verse 2 and Tyre and Sidon 
there in verse 2. You get down to Ashkelon in verse 5, and Gaza, and Ekron. Uh, these are all the, uh, and Gaza, yeah, these are all the, the Philistine cities, Ashdod. So let's look at it. Verse 5 says, Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. That is, they're going to see the fall of Tyre and Sidon. Ultimately, that was not done by the Persians. It was done by Alexander the Great. It was done by the Greeks when they came sweeping through. And um, so, the Phil- uh, so the Philistines now uh, know that they're next. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. All right, and so here's what we're dealing with. This is, this is the Bible's language for what happens here, okay? This is not any kind of modern racism or any kind of a modern polemic against interracial marriage or anything of the sort. It gets abused that way, all right? It gets abused that way, but that's not what this passage is talking about. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. They also will be a remnant of our God. You know, to eat uncooked meat, to eat uh, the uh, sacrifices in their blood, to be consuming the blood, all right? Anybody know what the Philistine god was? Do you remember? Dagon, that's right. you remember what Dagon looked like? He had a big fish head, yeah. Inspiration for that classic song, Fish Heads, on the Dr. Demento show. Um, Why do I know that? All right. But this fish idol... And consuming the uh, the sacrifice within its blood, okay, not cooking your fish. You see where I'm going with this? I'm developing a doctrine against sushi. I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> Work with me now. All right, never mind. But this is the judgment that's coming. So I will remove their blood from their mouth, their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God. Are you kidding me? This mongrel race is is still going to have a remnant of believers in Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. And be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron, like a Jebusite. Well, what were they about? Who were the Jebusites? Why is there a remnant that remains of positive volition? Because every tribe, tongue, and, and, and uh, people are going to glorify Jesus Christ. There will be a remnant even of these guys. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. Who's that? Who's a guy that passes by and then returns? And no oppressor will pass over them anymore. For now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And so it introduces, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. Now, that seems pretty special. You know who that's talking about? Okay. <laughs> it, there are so many beautiful doctrines that interconnect. So many precious promises that interconnect. And the blessings of God who has all of these plans in place for sending the second Adam to, to solve the sin of the first Adam. All right? The lost estate of humanity is because of the first Adam. The wages of sin is death. Sin singular. Not sins plural. Not all the bad stuff you've ever done. No one goes to hell for their sins. It's sin. That estate of sin. The lost estate of sin in Adam. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the provision. Anyway, uh, the destruction of a nation, the, uh, the role of Satan, what he does when he wants to destroy a people group, um, and they do it to this day. They do it to this day. Rape is a tactic of the Muslims. They will come in. They will conquer the women. They will rape their women. They will produce Muslim children, children that will identify with their conquerors rather than their, the conquered people. And uh, an entire culture can be destroyed that way. An entire people group can lose its self-identified capacity because they're no longer purely Philistines. They're no longer purely Jews. They're no longer purely what have you, okay? In fact, the bulk of the Western Hemisphere, this happened with uh, the Central American and South American, all the mestizos, uh, 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 production between the Spaniards and the conquistadors and the Native American tribes of, of Central and South America. All right? And you end up with a mixed population group that becomes a whole new race. Well, guess what? As a whole new race, God's going to save some of them. Because every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to bow and, and testify to the glory of Jesus Christ. And uh, what, a, what a delight. Finally, and there's a lot more that's there. I wish I had the time to go into that. But the sovereignty of God in human history is once again seen as the sword of the Lord refuses to be sheathed until its appointed blood is shed. And this is a biblical text, but boy, it sure sparked a lot of mythology and a lot of... Uh, um, a lot of other things. In fact, I think there's Greek legends based on this. There's a lot of Middle Ages uh, stories based on this. These mystical swords, magical swords. And uh, once they're drawn from their sheath, they cannot be resheathed until what? Until you satisfy the hunger, the bloodlust hunger of that sword. The sword itself that has intelligence. The sword itself that, that comes to uh, dominate the, the thinking of the, the person wielding it. Yeah, you think you're the greatest swordsman in the world because, man, you're using this thing and you, you can't lose. But you realize that the sword is smarter than you are <laughs> and you are now a puppet. You're demonic possessed from this, from this sword. Anyway. Um, but the sword of the Lord, put it back in its sheath. And we have uh, the cry here in verses 6 and 7. Ah, oh, sword of the Lord, how long will you not... Be quiet, because it's, it's ringing. It's ringing and singing as it's, as it's uh, inflicting its judgment here. Withdraw into your sheath. Be at rest and stay still. 
How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it in order? See, God has sovereign control of human history. And there is a time for peace, but there's a time for war. And as God is executing his judgment upon the various nations, it's not going to stop until he's accomplished God's good pleasure, until he's accomplished God's purpose. It becomes a sacrifice. So the Lord has given it in order against Ashkelon, against the seacoast. There he has assigned it. And so we can take uh, great comfort in that. All right. Well, that wraps up the last slide there. Let me just real quickly give you, and then we'll dismiss in uh, the closing hymn. I mentioned it earlier, and I intended to put it back on the slide, and I failed. So Acts 17. Acts 17, and the Sermon on Mars Hill, verse 26. Verse 26, and it's worth, I tell you, underline it, put a marker there, show it to your friends, show it to your neighbors. Take great comfort in Jesus Christ's control of human history. He observes that they're very religious in all respects. They've got all these altars everywhere, these, these temples everywhere, including one to an unknown God, just in case they missed one, right? So they're covering their bets. And... Uh, he says, let me tell you about this God you don't know. He's nearby and he's knowable. He's nearby and he's knowable. All right? So let me tell you about this God we don't know. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need us. In fact, he gives us everything we need. Verse 25, he gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man... If you have a King James, it says one blood. He made from one, one, every nation of mankind to live on in the face of the earth. Okay? This verse destroys all racism. It destroys it all. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And it, there's no superiority of one against another. One man. We're all Adamic humanity. All right? With respect to this. He made from one man all, uh, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. You notice that? So who fixed our times and our boundaries? If our nation was birthed in 1776, when's our nation going to be concluded? We don't know, but God does. He's in charge of that. And when was the Cherokee nation overthrown? When were the Comanches overthrown? When, was, when were the Aztecs overthrown? When God's in charge of all of this. And the borders that move and shift and all that. Are borders important? Who's in charge? All right. As God controls human history. Anyway, pay a lot of attention there to uh, Acts 17.26, and I think you get a, a good view of... Uh, Jesus Christ and his control of history. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for Jeremiah. I thank you for um, the great lessons that we can learn related to fear and not being afraid, related to faith and uh, standing before you as men with our wives and our children depending upon us. I pray, Father, for additional applications to be made as we study the, uh, the full impact of this chapter and we see your uh, overall plan and program from Alpha to Omega. 
I pray that we would learn to think beyond simply the human realm and have an understanding of Scripture that encompasses uh, angelity as well as humanity. (coughs) Father, teach us. Teach us all these things as we proceed forward, looking to the same thing you're looking forward to, Father. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I thank you that you've designed a plan on that, uh, that very premise, that you yourself are looking forward to that, that you yourself, Father, sent the blessed Redeemer that we might uh, have this eternal position with you for all eternity. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.